And you'll notice in your bulletin outline the first point, giving back to God is an act of, and I should have put the word his in there, it's an act of his grace. So what are you talking about? Well, Paul says this three times in our text and more times in the next chapter, chapter 9. But look at verse 1. He writes to the Corinthian church about the Macedonian churches, and this is what he says. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Then again in verse 6, So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion the act of grace on your part, you Corinthians. And verse 7, Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians church excelled in a lot of areas, but he exhorts them, see to it that you excel in this grace of giving. Now all of these verses, all of these references, Paul is talking about money. About money. He is referring to the special need of God's suffering and persecuted people in Jerusalem where the purge of the church, ironically begun by Paul when he was known as Saul, we read in Acts 8.3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Well, he's not in Jerusalem anymore, but the persecution is ongoing. And the believers were in a bad way because their houses, their goods, were being confiscated by the, uh, by the authorities, and their livelihood was revoked. They were getting fired from their jobs, if they had that kind of job, or their businesses were being shut down by vandalism. I think it was um, similar to uh, Crystal Notch. November 1938 in Nazi Germany, Crystal Night. It gets its name from the shards of broken glass that littered the streets after Jewish-owned stores and buildings and synagogues had their windows smashed. It was a terrible night in Germany. And it was a form of persecution to shut down the Jewish businesses. Well, before Crystal Night in Nazi Germany, there was something similar going on in Jerusalem. The believers in Acts 8 likewise were the counterparts to the following that took place in Germany. They were being unjustly torn away from their families. They were being unjustly torn away from their livelihood and hauled off to prison and possible execution. And it all started with Saul. He never got over the fact that he was the one who persecuted the church of God. But he's not Saul anymore. He's Paul the apostle. And the Lord can save a sinner that's a persecutor of the church like he can save anybody. And that's to the praise of his grace. Now, all of this being true, the churches in the Gentile Greek provinces, think Macedonia and Achaia, Macedonia to the north of Greece, Achaia, the southern province of Greece, they were informed of what was going on. And so an appeal went out to see what could be done for the brethren of Jerusalem. This is recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians now, 
not second. First Corinthians 16, verse 1 and following. Now about the collection for God's people, Paul writes, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Galatian churches would be Asia, okay. On the first day of every week, what's that? That's Sunday. On the first day of every week, each of one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come to uh, come, no collection will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men that you approve, and I will send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. So you see what's going on here. Back in the first book that he wrote to the Corinthians, they, he broached the subject, you know, there's a lot of persecution going down in Jerusalem, and we need to help these people. And so the, the word got out. So far, so good, right? I mean, a genuine need arose in the church of Jerusalem because of persecution, and the need was disseminated among the believers in the Greek provinces. And from what Paul says in our text, verse 2 and following, out of the most severe trial, and I was talking about the Macedonians, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they, the Macedonians, gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. Notice how he words that, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Verses 2 through 5 of our text. Wonderful. I mean, it's just wonderful. God's people heard about a need and they responded in such a magnanimous way as to literally shock The Apostle Paul, he says in verse 5, they did not do as we expected. That's, he's saying, I wasn't, I wasn't really counting on this. Um, Probably because Paul understood their own deep poverty. And so he says that out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. It kind of blew his mind. You know, that, that these poor people, this, these poor churches, would come up with such a great offering. Brethren, can I say it isn't the wealthy that keep the church going by paying the bills. It's not. If you read James chapter 5, I think it is, you will see that what the rich do is exploit. It's the ordinary people. It's the people who can least afford it, who may even qualify for the category as in our text of extremely poor. Like the widow that Jesus observed who had put two halfpenny coins, two half pennies into the church or into the temple treasury. Yet she dropped them both into the treasury while the wealthy were de- depositing bags of coins. And we read, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. 
I tell you the truth, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Mark 12, verse 43 and 44. Likewise, this was the Macedonian churches of our text. This was extremely commendable. Extreme poverty, but overwhelming generosity. But uh uh-oh, there's something else here, and it is not so commendable. In fact, it's rather reprehensible. Verse 10 and following. Here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. You Corinthians. He goes on. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. According to your means, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. ESV says fairness. At the present time, your plenty, that, that is your abundance, will supply what they need so that in equality as it is written he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little second corinthians our text chapter 8 verse 10 through 15 and that last verse is a reference to the manna when israelites went out and had to pick up from the manna for a day's uh, sustenance now what's going on here with paul well he's saying he's letting us know that corinth was a wealthy church. The providence of God, they were wealthy. They had plenty. All the bills paid, money in reserve, and so on. But they were dragging their feet. They started out well, yeah, that's true. But somewhere along the way, they lost their zeal. Their generosity was being engulfed with greed. Go to the next chapter, chapter 9, look at verse 5. If any Macedonians come with me and they find you Corinthians unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. You know, what he's saying here is, we've been bragging you Corinthians up because you were the first to even think of this and you were the first to give something uh, to help these persecuted uh, believers down in Jerusalem. But, you know, if we come and, and, and you have, don't have your offering ready, this, you see, this is, they're going to carry the actual offering. They're not mailing it. They're going to carry it to Jerusalem by couriers. But if they're not prepared, he says, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and, and, and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. And then it will be ready as a generous gift. Now notice the next phrase. Not as one 
grudgingly given. What's he saying? He's saying, I wonder, guys, if the reason you don't have your gift ready, I wonder if it's you haven't completed the offering you promised is, you know, are you having a little problem with greed now? Is it, you're thinking, wow, you know, we this is a lot of money that we're giving to the church in Jerusalem, you know. And so, grudgingly, if you wait till the last minute to do your benevolent work, did you really love doing it? That's a good question. The early Christian St. Bernard of Clairvaux is attributed with the precursor of the proverb, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, he didn't quite word it that way, but he wrote in 1150 A.D. something very similar, and so they attribute the phraseology to him or the concept. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. How many times have we said something like, Oh, I, I, I intend to be faithful in my church attendance this year. Or, you know, I wasn't able to do my share in contributing to the church last year, but I, I intend to make up for it this year since my job is going well now. And then a hundred things, a hundred things crowd into our lives, especially on Sundays. Reunions, family outings, work, vacations, ball games, and so on. And before long, we are missing more services than we attend. And the assembling of God's people together doesn't seem to matter much compared to all the other pursuits. We've just been crowded. God's day has been crowded with other things. And, and we find ways to spend the Lord's money on our own pleasures. James talks about that, James 4, verse 3 or what we might think of as necessities. Well, you know, I had car repair this week. Well, my furnace went out last month. But the Lord's treasury is never reimbursed. And we think, we think now, God will understand. <laughs> I mean, after all, doesn't our text, verse 12, say, For if the willingness is there, then the gift is acceptable according to what one has. Not according to what he does not have. Okay, okay. Yeah, it does say that. Fair enough. But in integrity, we have to ask another question of ourselves, and it is this. Why don't I have the money? Is it because I lost my job, or is it because I spent God's money on personal pursuits? And then I wouldn't have it either. So we're back to the opening statement, namely that giving back to God is an act of God's grace. In other words, God is a giving God himself, and he sees to it that you and I always have something to give back to him. I mean, even, if the, even the two halfpenny coins of the widow, it was all that she had to live on that day, to be sure. But, can I say it this way, they were hers to do with as she pleased. And she chose to give sacrificially so that she could be a part of the temple worship. She did not exempt herself because she was poor. 
Nor did she say, well, you know, I can't give bags of money, so I won't give any. This is what Paul means when he says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has. So I would say, be careful about rationalizations. We are expert in thinking up ways of justifying our sin and calling it good. Oh, I don't have the money. Okay, yeah, but why don't you? That's the next point. Point two, everyone has something monetarily to give to God's work. Everyone. And this is where the tithe comes in. The tithe, and the word just simply means a tenth. That's all, that's all the word means. The tithe is obligatory because it belongs to God. Let me read it for you. A tithe from everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, that is, if he spends it on himself, he must add a fifth of the value to it. The entire tithe, I'm still reading, of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. Leviticus 27, verse 30 through 32. Now think about this. In an agrarian society where your money is tied up in grain and fruit trees and livestock, which was Israel's economy, the only way to pay the tithe was to, uh, you know, bring produce, bring livestock um, to the temple for the Lord's work. The problem is, what would become of all this produce and livestock? God doesn't eat bread and apples and corn, nor beef, nor lamb. So, you know, they're bringing this stuff to the temple. Let me read it for you. Here's God's answer. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Deuteronomy 26, verse 12. Levites who were who? They were the ministers at the temple. If you remember your church history, they never received a land inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Everyone else got land inheritance so that they could grow crops and raise livestock but not the Levites. Their livelihood, could we say it that way, came from the tithe. And what about aliens, orphans, widows? They were also to benefit from the tithe. But, and this is very important, since the tithe belongs to the Lord, it is God who is supporting all these endeavors. Think about it. He is simply spelling out how and where he wants the income spent. So that's an important thing, that everybody has something to give to the Lord. And that's the next point. Everyone, without exception, has money for God's work. That's the principle of the tithe. No one is so destitute as to have nothing to give back to God. Verse 1, Paul refers to the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. But the very next verse says that these people consisted of those in extreme poverty. Well, 
How do you put those together? Yet for wealthy Corinth, there's a similar statement in verse 6, where Titus, Paul's fellow minister, was urged by the apostle to contact the church at Corinth. Why? To bring to completion this act of grace on your part. And again, verse 7, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. So, we have the extremely poor and we have the extremely rich. But both ends of the spectrum evidence God's grace, which is foundational to what they're giving back to God to be. Granted, it's not dollar for dollar, but it's grace for grace. According to what you have, according to what God has given you. Now, if we just think of the tithe one more time here, everyone, it doesn't matter what you make, everyone has a tenth, a tenth. Young people, if you get a dollar allowance, you have a dime that you can give towards God's work. If you make $100, you have $10 to go towards the service of God. And if you make $40,000 a year, you have $4,000 a year that God says is his. So when Paul says the gift is acceptable according to what one has, verse 12, he is not suggesting that there are people who have nothing. If ever there were a case for, well, I don't have anything to give... It would have been the Macedonian churches in the Greek province. They would have qualified. Oh, I have nothing. But instead we hear Paul say, verse 3, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So they really taxed themselves. Oh, and by the way, there were no guilt trips from the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, you know. There was no arm twisting. No, look at verse 3, latter part. For the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. I get the impression, I could be wrong, but I get the impression that the Apostle Paul was not even planning to mention the need of Jerusalem, because he knew how de desperate the budget was for these Macedonians in their own churches. So, it was the Macedonians themselves who took the initiative by pleading with Paul to participate. Love for the brethren is willing to sacrifice for them, even at personal cost of deprivation. And that's what we're seeing in this text. They don't have it to give, but they give it anyway. Thirdly, bulletin outline, when we refuse to pay the tithe to God, he says that we rob him. Remember that God has laid claim to a tenth of your income. It's his, not yours. And that is why it is obligatory and not optional. In Hezekiah's day, he reminded the people of their obligations, and we read, as soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain and new wine and oil and honey and all that the fields produce. They brought in a great amount, a tithe of everything, 
The men of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God. And they piled them in heaps. Did I read that right? Yeah, they piled the tithe in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and to spare. Because the Lord has blessed his people. And this great amount is left over. Oh, Hezekiah was looking at the leftovers. The heaps were the leftovers. So he gave orders, you can look at the text, to prepare storerooms in the temple of the Lord. And this was done. Second Chronicles 31, verses 5 through 11. They had stuff left over. Didn't go to waste. They put it in storehouses. Now, that's Hezekiah. That's the days of Isaiah the prophet. Nearly three centuries later, God issued this complaint through his prophet Malachi. Will a man rob God? Good question. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Answer, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. and The vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 12. The reason God can level the indictment against Israel, that they are robbing him, is because the tithe is his. And they were using part of it. He remember, he says, bring the whole tithe. So they were bringing some tithe, but not the whole tithe. Bring the whole tithe. They were using part of it for their own needs. What about this? Don't we have needs? Clothes to keep us warm, food to feed our bodies. These are needs. So how do we sustain ourselves if one-tenth of our income is already earmarked for God? God says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. Malachi 3.10 Do you know that Jesus echoed the same reasoning in the Sermon on the Mount? Let me read it for you. No one can serve two masters, says Jesus. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more important than clothes? So do not worry, saying, Oh, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? 
what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Yeah, we, we have needs. Oh, and he goes on. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. What's that? That's the floodgates of heaven from Malachi. You seek first God and his kingdom, and then the floodgates will be opened and all of your needs will be supplied. Now, God usually works through means to supply our needs. Work, employment, inheritances we receive, whatever sources of money. But the important is, seek first. God is to have priority in our lives. That's the tithe, right? Nehemiah 10, verse 37. Moreover, we will bring to the storehouses of the house of our God to the priests, the first of our ground meal or our grain offerings of the fruit of our trees, of our new wine and oil, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. The tithe consists initially, you see, of crops, newborn calves, lambs, what have you, produce, all of this on a yearly basis, to teach God's people not to do what Israel was doing in the day when God said through Malachi that they were robbing him. What were they doing in, in Malachi's day? Let me read it for you. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So what is God saying? He's saying, I require the best, and the best is the first fruits. Uh, don't bring me your leftovers. Where's the love of God in that? Where is the worship of God? Where is an understanding of who God is? He's the great and almighty king of the universe. He deserves the honor and respect due his person. And if you do that, you would never have to worry about meeting your own expenses. God has promised to supply your every need. Now these are biblical principles of how we worship God through giving. And I've just been dealing with money today. But there's other avenues of service, of course, with our time and talents and abilities with regard to the church and its work. Now then, secondly, in your bulletin outline, what are the benefits of faithful giving? We'll, we always want to know that, right? I mean, I want to know that. What, what's going to be the benefit if, if I'm faithful in my giving? Well, I've already mentioned a couple things. But the first thing is that God's work is fully funded when we're faithful. I'm convinced that if we would simply pay the tenth of our income, that is what you receive, into God's work, our church would never have a deficit in the budget. We would never have to worry about heating bills, insurance costs, salaries, unforeseen capital expenses like broken furnaces, new roofs, sump pumps, 
you name it, which you're going to have in a world of sin <laughs> where things break down, right? We read of the income of Hezekiah's day that the people brought so much that they had to pile the produce and goods in heaps on the ground. And Hezekiah had to order the construction of storehouses to keep it all. Similarly, in Moses' day, when an appeal went out to the people for gifts to construct the tabernacle, we are told, Then Moses summoned Bezaleel and Oliab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability, and who was willing to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring, notice the phraseology here, to bring free will offerings. Guess what? They weren't using um, the tithe here. These were offerings in addition to the tithe. And there was nothing in the budget for capital improvements of the sanctuary. The people continued to bring free will offerings morning and after morning so that all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, you know, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man, no woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. <coughs> I'd drop over dead if that happened. <laughs> And so the and I'm reading scripture. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Exodus 36, verse two through seven. Wow. You have the tithe, yeah, okay, the tenth, but these were free free will offerings. So the tithe plus free will offerings. These were what we give is truly from our own heart, from our own love for God and his work. We're really starting to give out of our heart and our love when we give the free will offering, one that isn't the tenth of anything. And that's what these people were doing. And the worker said, you know, Moses, you better stop them because they're bringing so much. We don't know what to do with all this. So that's the first thing. Through the tithe, through free will offerings, the first benefit to us is that uh, the church will have everything it needs to carry on the work of God. Secondly, God's people are blessed by the Lord. We read of this in the uh, Malachi text, that by giving the whole tithe that God promised to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. Malachi 3 verse 10. Oh, and we need not speculate as to the nature of the blessing because God goes on to say, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines of your field will, literally the Hebrew says, will not abort, will not have a fruit drop, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you what? They will call you blessed. <laughs> you, you will be blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3, verse 11 and 12. Again, an agrarian society whose livelihood depended upon pest-free crops, good weather. Uh, that, how were they blessed? They were being blessed 
or would be blessed with physical sustenance. God is going to take care of your needs. You will be blessed as you give to the Lord. But that's not all. Just a few verses later, same, same chapter, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Malachi 3, verses 16 through 18. In the next chapter, chapter 4, Malachi deals with judgment. So, what is Malachi saying? He's saying, God will firstly make it very practical. You'll be blessed materially. When you plant your crops, they'll grow. and You'll have a wonderful harvest. Secondly, it's going to bless you spiritually. When judgment comes, you will be my treasured possession. And I will take care of you. That's a wonderful thing to think about. That we are blessed as we give to the Lord. I like to say that God is debtor to no man. God pays his debts. We can think of it that, in that crass way. Thirdly, here's something that's really precious. Mutual love abounds in the hearts of giving and selfless people. You think stingy people are loving people? I don't. The early chapters of the book of Acts depict a phenomenal outcome of the gospel's saving power. It says there they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which I believe is the Lord's table, and to prayer. Oh, well, let's read on. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Looks like the honeymoon period, doesn't it? Some would say that. Well, of course they're elated. Wow, they just got saved. You know, they're in a new fellowship. You know, they're enjoying one another's company. They're meeting daily for worship to hear the apostles teach the word of God. They're having fellowship with one another. They're celebrating the ordinance of the Lord's table. This is the honeymoon period. Of course, uh, you know, they would be doing these things. Well, you know, this is chapter 2, <clears throat> chapter 4. The honeymoon's over. Acts 4. The honeymoon's over. Peter and John had been hauled before the Sanhedrin for healing a man. Oh yeah, they were <coughs> released tempor temporarily because the Sanhedrin couldn't figure out, well, how can we punish them? And they, they, they couldn't figure out a way to do that because all the people, the, kind of, you know, the, the people around Jerusalem were rejoicing that this man had been healed by the apostles, so... 
couldn't very well, on good taste, touch the people that healed the man. So they let him go for it's just a short while. Chapter 4, they're all rearrested, Peter and John. And this time, all of the apostles are arrested. All of them taken before the Sanhedrin. All of them warned by the Jewish authorities. Don't you be preaching anymore in this name of Jesus. And when they refused to do it, they got flogged. Roman flogging. Honeymoon's over. But we read Acts 4 now, not Acts 2. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. But with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. What's this grace? It's the grace of giving. Verse 1 of our text. Verse 6, verse 7. How do you know that? Let's read the next verse. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Acts 4, 32 through 35. No government welfare, no food stamps, no housing vouchers, just God's people dipping into their own pockets to help one another in time of need. And doing so as people, the text says, who were one in heart and mind and with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Again, no arm twisting. No guilt trips. They just loved one another. Brethren, tight-fisted people who clench every dime do not share like this. Fearful as opposed to faithful people do not give like this. They're always worried that, oh, if they're too generous... There will not be enough money for their own needs, even though Jesus has told us to seek his kingdom first, and then he will supply all of our needs. Listen again to what Luke records about the early believers. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. It is this kind of selfless love, a love that will sacrifice, that others may have just the basics, that resulted in the Lord adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, verse 47. Of course, who wouldn't want to be a part of a loving group like that? And the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of the onlookers and said, wow, see how they love one another? I don't know who these people are that call themselves Christians or followers of the way. Oh boy, look, look how they take care of one another. Sadly, I say today that genuine love is an elusive thing. People are always thinking, what's in it for me? But God's church, God's church cannot function like that. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers, writes John. Anyone who does not love 
remains in death. And anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So this is how we know what love is. Now he's going to give us a definition. How do we know what love is? Writes John. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and he sees his brother in need, but he has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, is, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. 1 John 3, verse 14 through 19. The church, if it is anything, is the compilation of God's people carrying on God's work for the outreach of the gospel and the edification of believers. To the two E's. You want to take two E's with you today? Evangelism and edification. That's our work. And it takes money to do these. And those who love will see this and respond accordingly. And I'd like to close with verse 8 of our text. Paul writes, you know, Corinthians, wealthy Corinthians, listen up. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's using this word grace again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become. Brethren, may I say that's the motivation for our monetary giving, for helping one another, for seeing that the church goes on in terms of evangelism and edifying God's people. You can't match this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giving that we see in Him. And we ought to love Him because He first loved us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Who would ever thought that we could worship you through giving, but here it is. We do so in the fact that our gifts, firstly, are owed to you in terms of our tithe, but in the free will offerings is the giving of our hearts. And why would we do this when we have our own needs? It's because it is more blessed to give you taught than to receive. There's a blessing there. Nothing warms our heart more and satisfies us more than to see people in destitution, people in great need, helped by our loving generosity. Well, we are a church of your people. Your church has expenses. We have people in our church on occasion that need help financially. And we are able to do that because of the generosity of loving people here. Thank you, Lord, for the, the grace of giving. You give to us so that we can give to others. 
We don't produce the crops if we were the farmers. We don't even produce the good health that allows us to go to work each day, use our minds and our bodies to earn gainful employment. We don't do any of that. These are your gifts. And so as we receive from you, give us a heart of selfless generosity. Make us like the Macedonian churches that trusted you, like the widow woman that trusted you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us. We thank you for your great and merciful gift in the Lord Jesus Christ, this great Savior who emptied himself, Philippians 2 says, of all of his uh, glory and became a man. And as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to God, God the Father, all the way to the cross. Great sacrifice here, bloody sacrifice, a painful sacrifice. But willingly did he lay down his life for his friends. Lord, we ought to do the same for one another. And I pray that you'll help us to see that. Thank you for all of our gifts. Thank you for meeting the needs of our church. Thank you for the generosity of God's people. In Christ's name.